everyone. I'm Riyadh Akyol and this is Dignified Resilience, a podcast on fresh narratives on confronting despair, alleviating distress, and forging ahead. In this podcast, we hear from people around the globe at all stages of life and variety of industries and learn how to channel dignified resilience to survive, feed the soul to heal, and connect with others through inspiring compassionate actions and behavior. At the same time, I aim to grow a global conversation that seeks to better acknowledge different sociocultural perspectives on meaningfully weathering life's adversities and achieving well-being. Here is a noble and humane invitation for surpassing our old selves by learning about and from other people's moving forces and limitations for successfully overcoming affliction and ache. Remember, we have different lives, distinct pathways, cultures, and contexts, but we can find common ground in supporting dignified resilience anywhere. So let's go then. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dignified Resilience. I'm so honored to have Professor Asma Barlas with me today as my guest. Um, she is a professor at the Department of Politics, and she joined the Politics Department of Ithaca College in 1991, and will be retiring in August 2020. For about half this time, uh, she has served as the founding director of the Center for the Study of Culture, Race, and Ethnicity. And uh, she has a very prolific career, and the path began in 1976 in Pakistan's foreign service, from which she was later fired at the behest of the country's military ruler. I'm giving the information from the official biography for criticizing, of course, Zia ul Haq, General Zia ul Haq. She then worked briefly as the assistant editor of The Muslim, which is an opposition paper, before leaving to the US, where she received political asylum. Her non-academic work includes poetry, short stories, and a weekly column for the Muslim. I didn't know this part about poetry about her, as prolific and resourceful as she is. Her academic, of course, work is about different aspects of violence, in particular colonial, sexual, religious, and epistemic. She wrote books about Pakistan's chronic militarism, British colonial rule, and of course one of the things that made me discover and connect to Professor Barlas was believing women in Islam, unreading patriarchal interpretations of the Quran, which was published in 2002, and then in 2019, a brief introduction, and she can tell us more about it in terms of the differences. And of course, in uh, the context of post 9-11, she's worked a lot about writing and talking about Western narratives and representation of Islam and Muslims. Before I welcome Professor Barlas, which, by the way, I want to tell you, she refused to call to allow me to call her that way. So she, we were trying to find a way which how should I call her? And we got to Asma Abla, which Abla means older sister. I do want to say just one more thing shortly before we, I bring Asma Abla into conversation. I'm not a scholar of Islam. I'm a Bosniak, Bosnian Muslim woman who, of course, because of my personal background in the Balkans, was always quite aware of the beauty and ethical principles that inspired the life of my family. But also I was, since my birth, aware of the power of religion and the interpretations of any religion, including Christianity, and the pain that some religious interpretations mixed with ethno-nationalist ideologies in the Balkan context can bring and lead to from dehumanization to 
genocide of my people um, and killed for being Muslim. So though I have studied international relations and because how life played its cards, and certainly after getting married, because of my husband's scholarly work related to Islam and expanding freedoms within it, I've become so much more intellectually interested in the past eight years, which is another reason why I've so appreciated Asma Abba's work, because of the exploration that it led me to in terms of some quite hurtful interpretations uh, that are inegalitarian. I met Asma Abla in 2014. She's patiently waiting for me, but I do want to say this to set the, to set the background of this connection, which I appreciate so much. We met in 2014 when I lived in Turkey, but at that time I came shortly to the United States with my husband who gave a talk for Islam Without Extremes book in Ithaca College. And I found a photo recently of me and Professor and Asma Abla. And that photo I thought was so beautiful because it reflects, and I will put that photo by the way for you, for you all to see. I think it, will, it reflects a, a testimony of my connection and relationship with Asma Abla because it, she's open in that photo and she's a testimony of her willingness to listen to me and to hear me. And it also testifies my intellectual curiosity to keep learning from her. So thank you so much, Asma Abla, for everything that you have provided throughout the years in terms of your openness and warmth and humility and a sort of transgenerational solidarity, which I so appreciated precisely because you allowed me to think that even though I am not a scholar who has studied decades and years, has both something to contribute and to listen, and that meant a lot to me. So uh, this is both a beautiful gift to eat for me and a contribution, hopefully, towards my commitment to contribute to this idea of Islam being a source of dignity for all of us. Sorry for the long rant, but this is my only opportunity and it's my podcast to welcome you properly and honor you in terms of your scholarship, but also kindness and warmth, which is so encouraging. Long story short, welcome, salam alaikum, and how are you doing today? Wa alaikum assalam, and that's certainly the most uh, beautiful introduction I've ever received. So I'm very grateful to you for that, Riyada. And I think what's left out in my official bio biography is that I'm also not a scholar of Islam in the sense that my PhD is also in international studies. And I should say a little bit that I was taught to read the Quran in Arabic starting around the age of 10. Um, but the Malvi Sahib, you know, the gentleman who came to our house to teach me and my siblings didn't know Arabic. And so we all learned to read the Quran in Arabic without ever understanding uh, what it was saying. Mm -hmm. So I came to the Quran through English language translations and I came to it out of uh, curiosity. Mm -hmm. And I came to it uh, partly because, you know, I grew up in Pakistan and I always used to hear all of this um, stuff about male privilege, male superiority, male ascendancy, male dominance. And of course, when I was young, I didn't understand anything about the structure of uh, male privilege or its roots in religion. But I was sufficiently curious that I read the Quran, um, but I also read it uh, as a form of uh, religious um, 
I can't call it practice, but out of a sense of uh, religiosity, for lack of a better term, out of a longing to understand what the Quran was telling us about God. So whatever scholarship I've done on the Quran has come much later in my life, uh, when I was in my 40s. And it's mostly self-taught because, you know, I spent all of these years just like you, <clears throat> learning about different literatures, you know, the history of Quranic exegesis, uh, Muslim intellectual history, political history, hermeneutics. So it was a process of really um, re-educating myself. And it was very rewarding for me because when I returned to the Quran with uh, all of the knowledge I had gained relative to what I had before, um, I found that it opened up uh, new insights for me. So I will say that I enter into this discussion not as some kind of an expert on the scripture, nor do I treat it simply as a text for rights, even though I have written an academic book about it. For me, most of all, it is a, it's a sacred lifeline to God. So that's my living relationship to it. I have read it daily for the better part of 50 years. So that's how I will come to it. And what I say here are obviously my own understandings of its teachings. So um, I'm open for your questions and very much hope that we'll continue to have this dialogue between us because everybody brings their own understanding of the Quran, you know, into a conversation. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, for you, let's start with the Quran, which is the beginning and all, and the center of kind of your scholarship in terms of in terms of the connection between God and the Quran. Am I correct that in your understanding, it was always this thought that if God is just, then the Quran itself, as the word of God, must also be just, which means egalitarian and anti-patriarchal. Correct. Well, it's, uh, let's begin with, the, let's unpack this a little bit. So for me, the Quran is the heart of Islam. If we know anything about the fact that the prophet was the prophet, if we know anything about the oneness of God, if we know anything about how to behave with each other, um, the Quran comes first. It's um, the living embodiment of Islam. And for me as a practicing Muslim, it is the word of God. And so the Quran, I look to the Quran for what it says about itself, and it does uh, claim to be a divine message. It claims to be coherent, and it claims to be without error. So I accept all of those claims. And if the Quran is God's speech, obviously, we have to ask, what does the Quran say about God? And so what we learn uh, from the Quran about God is central to how I then interpret the Quran because I assume that there's an organic relationship between who God is, or at least how the Quran describes God, and what the Quran says. Um, so I should also say for your listeners and viewers that I would say about 80, 85% of the Quran is about God. Hmm. So the majority of the Quran is about God, about life, about the purpose of life, the miracles of nature, God's creations. And very small part of it is actually about human relationships, about human etiquette, about human behavior. And unfortunately, we often forget this, especially in the academy, where people just see the Quran as just a text on rights or not. 
depending on how they're seeing it. So yes, um, the Quran says that God is just. That's a definition of God. And justice, uh, uh, God's justice, according to Toshihiko Izutsu, who's a Jap who was a Japanese scholar of the Quran, um, is defined as not doing zulm. And zulm in the Quran, he says, is to transgress against the rights of another. So we begin, I begin uh, the Quran with the understanding that the Quran is the word of a God who has circumscribed God's own justice so as not to transgress against the rights of another. So if we begin from that assumption, then I look for how the Quran then um, deals with instances of zulm. And I, we can speak about that later. You know, we can unpack that concept later. Mm -hmm. But yes, you're right that I believe that if, the, if God is just, then as the speech of God, the Quran is just. Yeah, and we will unpack it throughout the conversation. But when you were speaking about the rights over others, it was interesting to, and I read it in your book, that it was out of 6,000 verses, five or so have only been interpreted right by some scholars as giving husbands certain non-reciprocal rights. So how do you, Asma Abla, in terms of methodologies, read? What are the liberating modes of reading that you use? Okay, so the first method is to try and uh, sort of establish the co coherence of um, divine self-disclosure, which is to say who God is and wh what God says. So that's part of a methodology. And I don't think many people realize that, that it's a method of linking the Quran first and foremost to God and deriving certain attributes. And I look at certain attributes of God and I read the Quran in light of that. So that's one methodological uh, move. You might call it a theological uh, mm -hmm. hermeneutics. So for instance, there are three aspects of God's self-definition in the Quran that I look at. One, of mm -hmm. course, is justice. The other is the fact that God is one. And Tawheed for us Muslims means not just that God is one, but that God is absolute sovereign. God's sovereignty does not include anybody else. The Quran is very strict that that is the reason why there are not multiple gods, because then each would have had their own realm of sovereignty. One God, one sovereign, absolute ruler. So that's important for reasons I'll explain later. And the third aspect is that God is unlike everything in creation. Everything we know, God is unlike anything we know. So the way the Quran describes it is that God is beyond the highest evolved thought of human beings. God is inimitable. God is unique. And the Quran goes so far as to tell Muslims not to compare God to others, not to use similitude for God. But of course, we are human beings, and so we use languages about God that can be very masculinizing. You know, we speak of God as he because Arabic, in Arabic, God is given a gender. But interestingly, you know, Arabic is one of those languages where the female gender is often subsumed into the male gender, which also happens in other languages. So uh, my in-laws are Mexican. And when my father-in-law, who's passed away, when he would write to my husband and myself, he would say, my beloved sons, mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. hijos. 
So the female gender was subsumed in the male gender. So, so it, it is in the Quran as well. But the fact that the Quran masculinizes God at a linguistic level in, the, in terms of language doesn't mean that the Quran is a male right. or a man or anything like a human being. So because it says God is incomparable. So one of the major attributes of God that I look at and from which I derive an anti-patriarchal reading is precisely that if God is not a male, God is not son, God is not father, God is not a man, why would God then favor human males just because they are males, biological males? And in fact, there is no evidence at all in the Quran, nothing, not one sentence, not one surah, not one word, which says that God prefers men because they are men, because they are biologically male. So that's one aspect of my methodology. The other two are pretty straightforward and simple. The Quran stipulates some criteria that uh, we should use when reading it. For example, it says to privilege its foundational verses. Mm -hmm. So what are the foundational verses? I understand them to be verses that Muslims can read throughout history till the end of time and their meaning doesn't change. Well, what are those verses? As, uh, as far as human beings are concerned, the verses are pretty clear. It says God created you from a single self, single mm -hmm. nafs. There's no narrative that God created man and out of man, God extracted the woman, you know, like out of man's rib. That is Quranic exegesis. Um, the other verse is that, that God made both women and men khalifa on earth. It doesn't say only men are khalifa. Thirdly, it says something so profound, which Muslims almost never talk about, except in a purely passing manner, is that God has appointed women and men each other's awliya. So awliya over here can mean anything from guides to custodians to friends. And one of the attributes of God is to be our wali. So women and men are each other's awliya. So I consider these foundational verses. And then there are other verses which I consider to be more specific. And again, uh, you know, I'm just laying this out and we can talk about it later. Okay. So um, I, I read the Quran in light of these foundational teachings. Mm -hmm. All, as you said, you know, the Quran has more than 6,000 verses. Mm -hmm. And out of them, less than six uh, verses and partial verses and words are interpreted by Muslims as establishing male dominance over women, less than six out of over 6,000. Mm -hmm. So I read those verses, which some feminists now call the hierarchy verses, mm -hmm. in light of the Quran's foundational teachings. Right. Um, the Quran also says to look for the best in its meanings, which suggests to me that there are multiple ways to read the Quran and not every, every reading can be best. So there, is, there are criteria for what the best reading may be. The Quran forbids tearing it into shreds, which is a metaphor for reading it piecemeal. The Quran emphasizes that the whole of it is from God, not just what we like, not just the verses I like and you like. The whole of it is from God. So the principle of textual holism. Mm -hmm. And the Quran also references its own, uh, shall we say, um, historical specificity. So by which I mean that there are verses which clearly were addressed to social conditions in 7th century Arabia. 
And to the extent that those conditions no longer prevail, those verses are no longer applicable, not because you or I decided to abrogate them. I don't believe Muslims have the right to abrogate the word of God, but because those um, circumstances have changed, those institutions and social structures have changed. For example, slavery isn't anymore, mostly. So those are some of the principles, um, you know, methodological principles I apply. Uh, contextualizing the Quran, um, by looking at the historical circumstances in which certain verses were revealed, uh, respecting the Quran's textual holism, reading it in light of each other verses, you know, like many Muslims read one verse and then another verse, and then they don't try and connect it. Right. So I try and do that. And the third, as I said, is in light of how the Quran describes God. Yeah, so that then means that it is basically who has asked the questions maybe throughout the formation of the knowledge is right and instead mostly in the period of formation of this interpretation it was male privilege that has kind of allowed to these solidification of the knowledge or norms that have come out of it so then how do you asmavla make distinction between the quran's general principles from its particulars so the general principles would be, uh, you know, like I said, through the foundational teachings, which don't change over time. Mm -hmm. So if uh, human beings, women and men were created from the same self, if both of them are equally God's custodians on earth, if both of them are equally moral agents on earth and each other's mutual guides, then to me, those are foundational principles. Then let us take a look at some specific um, um, teachings, uh, which, and you know, when Muslims are talking about male privilege, they always go to verse 434, which they read as beating, beating, allowing the husband to beat a wife. And there's now so much literature on that verse. And uh, the short of it is that the word that is translated as beat can also, its roots also signify other, have other meanings because Arabic is a rich language. And so the, it can be to leave, to separate, to set an example. And in one of the latest books by Muhammad Waqas about the Quran, I have read that it can mean to cite, C-I-T-E, to authorities. So there are multiple readings of that particular word, shall we say. But even if we, if uh, Muslims disagree and they insist that no, this is the only way to read it is to beat and strike, then the other way to think about that verse is that we are talking of the seventh century. We are talking of a time when there was so much abuse of women and violence, which was not considered abuse and violence at the time. You know, sadly, uh, it was abuse. There was misogyny, but. At the time, it was not only tolerated, but considered normal. So if you read 434, you will see that it is uh, setting up certain steps before a man can even get to strike his wife. For me, one of the big questions is that if there are three steps, the wife can leave after the first one. There's no compulsion on the wife to hang around until the husband beats her, because that's not you do understand it's not the first measure, but some women, particularly in feminists and Muslim men are upset that there is such a reference in the Quran at all. So my own preference is firstly to read it in light of other verses. 
the Quran says that if, um, you know, it tells men that if your wives and children are your enemies, be kind to them. It's, it tells men that if you don't like a wife, still be kind to her. Maybe God has put good in her. It tells women and men that if you're divorcing each other, be kind to one another. Under no circumstances does the Quran speak about violence against women. But 434 can also be historicized because that privilege that men think is uh, their right because they're men, what I do want to say is that there are very few universal rights in the Quran, by which I mean, you know, these days we grew up with the notion of universal rights. Uh -huh. We grew up with notions of sexual rights and gender rights, but that's because we tie rights to a person's identity. But what I find fascinating is that the Quran doesn't tie rights to a man, a man or a woman's sex or gender. It doesn't tie rights to race, class. I mean, you could say that, yes, there are differences. I take that back. It's not racialized and it's not sexualized. There are no universal rights in the sense that men have rights by virtue of being males, which means that regardless of which century they live in, they have exactly the rights that they had in the seventh century. No, they don't. They had certain rights in the seventh century vis-a-vis slave girls, if they owned any slave girls. They don't have those rights now. But it's sort of interesting that when it comes to the rights that a husband has vis-a-vis -vis his wives, the husband thinks those rights are eternal. But social structures have changed. The position of women has changed. And the Quran does not make it mandatory to hit your wife. So I'm trying to say that even with the most difficult verse in the Quran, we have multiple ways to deal with it that remain within the bounds of Islam because it is not an order. It's not a command to beat your wife. Even if we read it that way, it's not a command. At best, it's maybe a permission or a license, but I even question that. So that's the way, that's just one example. The way we, the principles remain the same and take dress, sexual modesty, you have to cover yourself. But a lot of people in Pakistan, women in Pakistan now dress like they do in the Middle East. They don't wear their own clothes. They try and wear Arab clothes, mm. as if Arab clothing is somehow sacred, if Arab clothing is the norm. But what the Quran is emphasizing is the principle of sexual modesty for both women and men, by the way. Tell the believing men to lower their gaze and guard their modesty. Tell the believing women to lower their gaze and guard their modesty. So it's not that hard to separate out universal principles from those which you might consider historically specific. And to bring more nuance to this, which is uh, in terms of defining patriarchy and understanding different manifestations and aspects of it. And I think that it would be beneficial also for our listeners to also hear how you define it, because I thought it was really so important to add the nuance or the factor of unquestioning obedience into this equation on the part of both men and women kind of to the established norms, because that is a huge part of what drives uh, both the explanations of why everything and, and also why we are discussing this yeah. for years if not decades. And I want to ask you how you see the progression of discussions throughout the years. Okay, so let's start with patriarchy, okay? So the first thing is that by now, um, you know, everybody speaks about anti-patriarchal and patriarchal, but 
in uh, 99, as I was finishing the manuscript for my book, <clears throat> only Amina Wadud had written about uh, patriarchy and the Quran, but she was of the opinion that the Quran is, quote, neutral towards social and marital patriarchy. Um, unfortunately, she didn't describe what she meant by patriarchy. So I felt that maybe that was one thing I could do in my own work. And the way I did it was to describe it in two ways. One was, you know, this historical practice of uh, just rule by the man in his capacity as a father, patriarch. So I don't know if you know, but in medieval Europe and in contemporary, some contemporary tribal societies, the man in his capacity as father slash husband has the right of life and death over his wives and children. So I describe patriarchy as the historical tradition of rule by the father, which uh, in its religious manifestations often represents God as patriarch, God as male. And so my book was an attempt to show that that definition of patriarchy is entirely miss missing from the Quran because God is not father. And there is no verse in the Quran which says that men in their capacities as fathers or husbands have rights of, of life and death over their wives and children. So that was one definition. But you know, patriarchy has also changed over time. Um, and so contemporary patriarchy is more, shall we say, secular. And uh, this form of patriarchy basically differentiates between women and men based on their biology. And it confuses biological differences with gender inequalities. So the fact that women and men are biologically different is automatically taken as a sign that they are, one is superior to the other by virtue of their sex, male sex, female sex. So that's the other way in which I define patriarchy and the more technical uh, definition was as a politics of sexual differentiation that privileges males because of their biology. And so part of my uh, work shows that missing from the Quran is any such notion of patriarchy as well. That the Quran actually doesn't pay much attention to sexual differences. And where it does note sexual differences, it does not assign any gender symbolism to sex itself. So Wadud had pointed out, for example, that there's no concept of gendered man or woman in the Quran. And my take on this argument is that the Quran differentiates between women and men biologically, but it does not assign the difference any gender symbolism, which means that technically we cannot derive a theory of inequality from its teachings because it does not link sex with gender. I don't know why people get lost in this argument quite frequently, but it's sort of obvious um, that there's nothing which says that because women are biologically female, they're inferior to the man in their capacity to think, they cannot be moral, you know, moral individuals, they cannot be Khalifa, they cannot be awliya. So, and you it's in, yeah, please. Yeah, and you also, I believe, say that the difference does not necessarily mean inequality, right? Right. And I thought right. that was very important when I was reading your work, that basically, even if the Quran sometimes has different treatment for men yes. and women, uh, yep. that is not rooted in those biological claims of kind of men being superior sex, right? Right. And uh, in modern times, you can think about how racial differences are coded. Mm -hmm. 
we don't say white and black, we automatically assume that white is privileged over black. And that race is self, self is a social construct. There actually are no multiple races. We are all genetically the same. So it's the same kind of a way of differentiating between people for the for purposes of establishing a hierarchy. And the Quran doesn't do that. So the question of obedience becomes kind of moot. In patriarchal cultures, the assumption is that God preferred men because they are male. And that by virtue of being male, God gave them a capacity for rational thought, intelligence, moral individuality, and so on and so forth, all of things which are missing from women. And because men are superior and God made men superior, men are owed obedience by everybody. Men have a right not only to beat their wife, but their sisters in some countries and cultures that beat their mothers, they beat women who are not even in their own family. So this, this kind of male supremacy is entirely missing from the Quran. So the question of obedience becomes moot. And, but what if I'm getting correctly and to, to also not get lost, the different part of the emphasis of biological differences by neo-traditionalists, I guess, who also would say, yes, sure, they're equal created and in afterlife, but then they use the classical thick to kind of still, because women have fragile nature, keep them subdued or discriminated against. So I have problem with that too, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you see here again, uh, a lot of the misogynists in our society basically believe that the woman is biologically inferior. And uh, some of them believe that the only role that women have been put to play on earth is to uh, be a mother and basically to serve men. But you know, misogyny predates Islam mm -hmm. and misogyny has beaten down Islam. Mm -hmm. Misogyny sometimes has won over Islam because male privilege is much older than Islam. And there are, you know, Fatma Mernissi has done a wonderful study of how when the Quran was still in the process of being revealed to the Prophet Muhammad, how the early Muslims were already busy trying to figure out how they could deprive women of the new rights that the Quran was giving them based on, oh, well, you know, there's a verse which says, don't make over the property to those who are weak-minded. So immediately they came up with the idea that women are weak-minded. But what I want to say is that these constructions of gender have nothing to do with the Quran. They have zero relationship to the Quran. I always ask Muslims to show me one verse which actually says that the different rights that the Quran gives women and men with respect to some issues are rooted in the claim that men are biologically superior than women or because women and men are opposites or unequal or incommensurable with each other. Not one verse says that. So I see these differential rights as simply representing the sexual division of labor that existed in 7th century Arabia. And I believe in an omniscient God. <laughs> that is to say, I believe in an all-knowing God. And I believe that God knew that that patriarchy would not last forever and would fade away along with all of its institutions of warmongering, concubinage, multiple marriages, slavery, and everything else. It tried to ameliorate the rights of women at that time 
and it's enormously progressive. But it's a disservice, not just to the Quran, but to our very conception of God to assume that what was okay in the seventh century, specifically based on what existed there, that it should be okay now, even though those, many of those circumstances don't exist. Yeah. So I, this is a, it's a very big disservice to Islam to deny the Quran's universalism by tying it to a seventh century tribal Arab patriarchy and insisting on reading it only through the lenses of that patriarchy and only when it suits you. Yes. It comes down again to what you have said earlier. It's who reads it, when, how, in what historical or political context, which I agree with. And to tie to this, it is the moral praxis, right, which should be the sole basis on which the humankind will be judged and that women and men are endowed that equality with the ability to attain taqwa or God consciousness for those who don't understand. So I think that's so powerful and it's and it's there. And again, it's not being used as that main standard or the basis that it should that it should be, as it says. Could you elaborate a little bit of, about this moral praxis? Because there might be listeners who might even not be Muslim to tell them about it. So since biology is unimportant to the Quran, we must ask ourselves then what is important to the Quran? It is not our sexual identity. It is not what class we belong to. It is not our race. It isn't whether we, whether we are female or male adult or child, you know, what matters is what kind of believers we are. So moral praxis would be how we choose to live in the world, how we live our lives. And the Quran is very clear that on judgment day, each soul, each nafs shall stand before her Lord. Nafs is feminine. So all of our nafs will stand before God to be judged individually. This is a very radical view of individualism, extremely radical. Um, and this is also significant because, you know, Islam has become so institutionalized. It has become privatized. It has become weaponized. And the truth is that the Quran does not establish any male clergy, does not establish a class of scholars. It says it came also for the Bedouin, the unlettered Bedouin in the desert. And it says at least 700 times, according to Zaudin uh, Sardar, he counted that it uses the word ilm and reasoning, the Quran, 700 times, that given whatever capacity God has given us, that we are responsible for deciphering the ayat, the signs of God ourselves, and that we, each one of us, will be responsible that final day of judgment when we, each one of us will stand in front of our creator by ourselves. No fathers, no brothers, no kin, no one. No wealth, no children, Nothing. just the self part. Just yourself. Just the, the way you have lived in the lived. It's so uplifting and beautiful to talk about the Quran this way. What is the place of the Hadith then? Let's mention that. And the way that Hadith has influenced and in some instances actually overtook the importance of authority almost. So for your listeners and viewers who don't know, Hadith are narratives of the Prophet Muhammad's life. 
that began to be sort of put together uh, many, many years after his death. And there are many thousands of hadith in circulation, some of which are considered more reliable than others, uh, depending on who is said to have narrated them. Um, but uh, there, there's, uh, you know, uh, some canonical hadith. Now, out of hundreds of thousands of hadith, there are about four that are sort of anti-women. They're sexist and misogynist, and most of them can be traced to only one narrator, but I'll leave that aside for the moment. And Muslims many times use that, those hadith to interpret the Quran. So, for example, they say that women will be the majority in hell. A woman who refuses sex by the husband will go to hell. Um, a society that entrusts its affairs to women will never succeed. If you're saying your prayer and a woman passes before you, your prayer is void. Mm -hmm. So those hadith are very questionable because they contradict the Quran or they undermine the Quran or they say things that the Quran doesn't say. There is not one sentence which says who will be, that women or men will be the majority in hell. Whenever the Quran speaks about belief and unbelief, it speaks about believing women, unbelieving. And believing women, believing men. Unbelieving women, unbelieving men. You know, it pairs them. So it's not one sex or gender that will be majority. There's nothing, uh, there's no misogyny in the Quran. Outside of that verse 434, whose translations and interpretations are very contestable, there is absolutely not a single shred of evidence. That one word, the whole Quran is judged based on the interpretation of Daraba, Idrabu. But you have more than 6,000 verses, as we know. And what I'm trying to say is that if we read the Quran as a whole, there is absolutely no place in it for sexism and misogyny. There is for differential rights. But as I said, those rights are not universal rights, and those rights can be rethought by Muslims if they were so uh, compelled to go that direction without violating Quranic principles. And you mentioned a few minutes ago individuality and how important and how radical that idea was. But how has it come that today when we mention, not always, of course, individualism, individuality, freedom. How is it that it gets pitted very often, and I'm not saying rightly, unrightly, so if you're just unpacking and having conversation as Western and thus automatically un-Islamic. The Quranic teachings, which encompass those principles, which are justice and equality and human dignity, and can that kind of also reflect some universal norms as well, which could be compatible as well with the contemporary human rights standards? See, this is an unfortunate tendency amongst Muslims not to know their history and actually not to know the Quran. Mm. I have been speaking about the Quran for almost 20 years now. I think I have met maybe three Muslims in 20 years who had actually read the Quran cover to cover. Muslims don't read the Quran. There was a survey done and people don't read the Quran. So, and yet they make very authoritative claims about what is and isn't Islamic. They don't know the history of Islamic civilizations. They don't know about Islamic philosophy or science or medicine or education, literature, poetry. So the truth is that, well, 
ignorance is a terrible <laughs> ignorance is a terrible thing because then but the people who don't know are the ones sometimes who speak the loudest and most authoritatively they're not modest about it but if i were to put it in political context i would say it has to do a lot with colonialism and the decline of islamic civilization so colonialism has unfortunately pitted the two parties against each other and the irony is that it was muslim science and uh, and literatures and philosophy that laid the foundations for what eventually was the enlightenment in europe and yet muslims themselves think that anything to do with europe is just european as if european civilization was not also partly made by muslims and arabs and jews and women and peasants and immigrants and working classes you know they have a very uh, white supremacist view of western civilization western civilization is not a pure civilization no civilization is so this kind of muslim legacy is basically what enabled the europeans eventually to thrive you know that legacy helped them made foundations for certain kinds of things there's a wonderful book by zaudin sardar i teach in my islam course you know for people who know nothing about islam it's called introducing muhammad it's also called introducing islam and it's a graphic book and the students just cannot believe that muslims had you know so much was going on in in islamic civilization muslim civilization before it was in europe so if today we say well freedom is a western concept liberty is a western concept uh, equality is a western concept then i want to say that the west and the the things that shaped the west have also come from muslim scholars from muslim people so i think it's self defeating and it's also incredible in listening to you now how what you're saying would be so incredible and upsetting to so many muslims and far right extremist non-muslims who would precisely argue a similar thing from a different coin uh, about the place of islam or not within europe here i speak also as a bosniak but in general as well so 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 that leads me to a question that i did want to ask at some point is how have you dealt with the challenge of having to be on one hand both transparent about so many real injustices that happen to occur and big realities in many muslim majority nations but on the other hand having to defend islam in the face of increasingly islamophobic racist anti-muslim bias I think that and I also say that first as a Bosniak somebody who as a Muslim woman does not you know reject Islam but actually claim it and I've experienced that in different geographical contexts in Turkey uh, because of my Turkish husband who deals with this but also in the west among many Muslims who live here so how have you dealt and because of also your background from Pakistan with this double trouble in this context I like the phrase double trouble because you know it's like uh, I don't know if it was uh, Yeganoglu who's a Turkish feminist uh, who wrote about gendering orientalism but somebody wrote about <clears throat> women being sort of double prisoners Muslim women like you're double prisoners you're a prisoner of Muslim patriarchy and you're a prisoner of western islamophobia you know so there always has to be a double critique yeah. yes 
So the double critique always has to be there, you know, because when the Quran says that you have to be witnesses to truth and justice, even if it be against yourselves, so then if the injustice is amongst Muslims, then the voice is to be raised in Muslim communities. If the injustice is at the hands of uh, white supremacist kind of people in the West, then they have to be dealt with as well. But uh, you get hit by both sides. And there's always that, it's, there's very little and narrow space. And worst of all, anytime you even say commonsensical things about Islam, like we have just said, they'll think, oh, you're, you're apologists. You're just trying to make it seem like, it's like it's in your history books, some history books, not all, but go ahead and read a little bit and maybe you'll figure out for yourselves that yes, um, there are all, there's violence in the religion in the sense of certainly amongst Muslims, um, but there's all of this other aspect of civilization and it's not for nothing that, you know, shall we say uh, Muslim civilization was the, you know, and, and the Turks were the first modern Islamic civilization, you know, depends on how we date modernity. At what point is modernity set in motion only vis-a-vis -vis the West or also vis-a-vis -vis the non-West? So these are all, these, this is all our heritage. And the thing is that one has to continue to do it. And I do it out of a sense of um, uh, just that it's unjust to let certain things pass, but it's difficult because when you critique your own community, you know, people see it as weakening yeah. it. Or contributing to the um, Islamophobia. Islamophobia or, you know, so it's always, as you said, and in different contexts, you could be labeled a traitor, yes. you could be labeled a heretic in some contexts, even for a different interpretation. And I do also, please, let's, to, again, our non-Muslim listeners, let's emphasize that that diversity of opinion and that ikhlaf is that basic concept has always been a part of fiqh as well, which is the the result of Sharia, which is not the same as Sharia as well, right? So that diversity of opinion existed even after the formal establishment of the schools of law. One might not have that sense today, considering how much we are not allowing conversations and even engagement with each other because of labeling that is, I guess, easier because it takes time an effort to read or to hear what somebody says. And I do also say this again because of my experience that, that my husband deals with. When, even when you reclaim values from within Islam, when he says Islamic liberalism, and it, he's just a example which happens to be here, it is always liberal, secular, which has a really bad connotation. But I do have to say that it's important to define what one means by those words which are charged with a lot of hurtful history, as you had mentioned in different contexts in terms of colonialization and imperialism. But then how do you see and how do you see a change throughout the past, for example, two decades or so? How are things looking in terms of that big picture? Has there been a movement, whether retrenchment, whether progress? I think both those things are there, Riyada. I mean, some places there's more retrenchment, there's more court conservatism or traditionalism. And I'm always hesitant to use these words because they can mean different things. But there's more extremism, there's more narrow-mindedness, there's more closure of the mind. 
as you know. But on the other hand, you know, I'm 70 years old now. And when I was growing up, I had no access to any um, interpretation or translation of the Quran that would give me even an iota of understanding of the Quran today. And your generation and the generation that's coming after you already has all of these literatures there. They have multiple, they've opened up multiple understandings of the Quran itself from within an Islamic framework, not just as a way to appease any secularist, as a way to live yourself in this present world. So I would say that all of these tendencies are there. I don't think there is only one tendency. Um, And the fact that uh, your consciousness as young Muslim women today is far more advanced than mine was when I was your age. You're more literate in things, you have access to more knowledge, you have, uh, you know, various movements, women's movements, they may or may not be as successful as one would want. Uh, Patriarchy is not easy to dismantle and even secular countries haven't managed to do it. So the fact remains that all of these tendencies exist in Muslim societies. And you know so much about them because of all of, you know, we were talking earlier about how you know what's going on with Tunisian women and women in, say, you know, Mosawa that's working on a Muslim fake to reform the law. And so things are happening all around the world. So I think there's no one static picture. I do want to ask you a thing. I do watch a lot of panels and conversations and I benefit immensely from them. But I do really rarely see a male scholar who supports these, unless it's just manal in some countries that I don't want to mention that actually where the award for gender equality is given in a room of men. 75 men, <laughs> maybe some people, you know, recognize. What are your thoughts? And would you agree with Bosnian-Australian scholar Adis Duderia? I appreciate his scholarship. That's why I want to promote the Bosniaks uh, when I see them, who writes recently applauding that more and more reformist-minded quote-unquote, Muslim male scholars are writing on, as he says, gender equality affirmative scholarship. I really believe that that is very important. I think that there needs to be more of them. There have been throughout history. And and precisely two days ago, I was listening to a Moroccan Islamic feminist, Asma Lamrabe, and she was basically reminding of, you know, Tahar Haddad and, you know, Muhammad Abdul. But in terms of how what some of the things that they were saying were so revolutionary for the time that they existed. Mm -hmm. So I do want to put this out there. There are scholars like that. How important is it actually for them to be seen as active participants? And would you have any message to those young listeners who might be sometimes scared to come out and fearful of the community pressure as well to say they support this? It's very important, of course. It's crucial because patriarchy is basically a male problem. And yet, anytime we talk about it, it's only I see a room full of women uh, who really don't need to be told that they shouldn't be beaten and men shouldn't treat them badly. And so, <clears throat> unfortunately, that's, that's how the debate has uh, unfolded. And I know Aris, I've known him for many years, uh, and uh, I did pull his leg a little bit because uh, he had uh, sent out uh, this book, you know, and I pointed out, hey, listen, now this isn't a single woman in here. So mm-hmm. I appreciate the fact that women are there, but uh, men are doing this work. 
But for me, inclusion isn't just a token thing. Let's have a token woman here. So I feel like that uh, scholarship, that's male scholarship is essential and important because sometimes men only listen to men. Um, but at the same time, I feel that when publishing happens, especially in a book, it's nice to have, you know, well-rounded book that also includes women's voices. So, so many men, I say this with humility, have to just unlearn and be, things have to be put on their radar. Uh, and I speak about from a personal experience where a Muslim man might support the cause and understand, but he wouldn't, it wouldn't be on his radar why he would have to do it precisely because that was, that's not the way or the lens through which they see the world. It also matters to put out there that these efforts for bringing more female scholarship or acknowledging more female scholarship does not mean that this is some effort against male and men this you know because sometimes even feminism etc some efforts are perceived as that and are alienating men whereas i really do believe that pulling or working together with the the muslim men who are well-intended and who support this is the only truly way forward. They could learn from the example of the prophet who had many women in his life, whom he consulted, whom he loved, whom he never entreated, who never waited on him, who never served him, and with whom he was loving and tender and respectful. So, you know, it's interesting what it is that Muslim men choose to follow. They usually want to follow the example of the prophet when it comes to marrying very young girls because they say, Aisha was very young, and I'm just following the sunnah of the prophet. And to some men who have said that to me after I gave a public talk, I have asked, well, if you're really interested in following the sunnah of the prophet, then why not follow the dominant sunnah of the prophet? The dominant sunnah was he was married to a woman who was twice widowed, 15 years his senior, Khatija, and he never married anyone in her lifetime. So if you really want to follow the prophet, then follow the dominant sunnah of the prophet too not just the one that you like and prefer. So you see, the problem is that Muslims, like anybody else from any other religion, we cherry pick what it is that we want to do, who we want to follow and, and you know what's going on. But for me, it's a problem that Muslims have become custodians of other people's morality, vigilantes. And I think that's probably the most hateful and hideous things that Muslims can do to Islam. Because the, every one of us is responsible for our own conduct. Of course, we have been charged to encourage the good and forbid the wrong. But it's uh, much more than that. There's violence, there's intolerance, there's abuse. And, uh, you know, so much is just unraveling uh, in Muslim societies in terms of the violence. that it does worry me. That it's like, why are Muslims so concerned with what the neighbor is doing or what somebody's wife or daughter is doing? Why not just mind your own business and lead a good life? Because that's the heart of religiosity, not policing other people. Absolutely. Thank you for stating that, because I believe that by voicing the injustices in realities in so many contexts, we are, so many of us are doing this because we love Islam and we love those, and again, I will use the word universal, what I believe are universal tenets. I do believe that, as you said, with so much scholarship that your generation has provided for us, I think that I'm seeing some shifts and movements towards 
refinement and a push towards correction of incorrections in terms of definitions, or I'm referring precisely now maybe to the idea of feminism, because there's so many, there's so much, it's such a charged term. It's almost, if, if somebody asked me something, I would really have to pose a question, what do you mean by feminism? Where are you locating it? What do you think about who I am and what I believe in, in order for me to be able to say, I agree with this or not. And I don't know, has it always been like that? But it's swelling, it's overwhelming. It's complicated to identify yourself with something that's going in all directions. But, and we can talk a little bit about it because I do not want our non-Muslim listeners to get lost between the big intra-Muslim debates on Islamic feminism and or conversations, I don't necessarily want to put it with the bad connotation. Uh, those who follow your work do know that throughout the years, you have resisted calling yourself feminist. So could you tell a little bit to our listeners, uh, how do you feel about that term now? And has anything changed, including your objections? Or has the term been gaining any clarification? What are your views and stances on that right now? Well, when I was writing the book, I preferred to call myself a believing woman because that's how the Quran refers, Muslima. At that time, you know, before uh, Jerusha Tanner, uh, you know, sort of used the word Muslima theology, it was not that common. It's certainly not in when I was writing. So I wanted to describe myself in terms of my own scripture. But in my book, I openly acknowledge that I'm very indebted to many Western feminists, Christian feminists, Jewish feminists, secular feminists, Marxist feminists, because I've learned a lot from their work. So it is not uh, out of some distrust of feminism, but there are many feminisms, as you said. In the United States, even Laura Bush was claiming to be a feminist and wanting uh, the US to invade Afghanistan to liberate Afghan women. So there's imperial feminism, there's white feminism, you know, the conservatives, the liberals, they are Marxists. So, you know, feminism has many connotations. As far as myself, uh, I, I have had three public debates with Marco Badran, who is the one who labeled me and Wadud and uh, Al-Hebri and referred feminists. And some of the women call themselves that, and that's absolutely fine with me. But in one of my public debates to Badran, I took issue with her naming me. Because I said I'm an ex-colonial subject. I come from a country that was colonized. One of the things that was denied to the, uh, to the colonized was to name yourself. So I admitted that for me, some of it was just being perverse. <laughs> I want to be able to name myself. Um, but more seriously, I feel that feminism has become a kind of a master discourse so that anytime you use certain phraseology, you're automatically subsumed as a feminist. And I find that an epistemically questionable gesture. So I have that ideological uh, resistance to it as well. But there are Islamic feminists, there are Muslim feminists, there are secular feminists, and you know people can define themselves as they want. And uh, if anyone's interested, they can look at some of these debates or write to me and I'll send them the text of some of them. A couple were published. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, I do a more rigorous job. And uh, I think the term itself, as you said, is evolving. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I do want to add that from 
what I have just read about different geographical contexts, as I mentioned, I mean, it, from my own country, the development of, I do want to mention Dr. Zielka's Pahit Shilak. It's so interesting how even these ideas of, let's say now Islamic feminism have developed in different geographical contexts. Like in, in Bosnia, it happened during the war when Islamic feminism, it happened in thanks to international secular organizations, particularly German ones, but basically it was this organization Medica from Zenica town, which was established to offer kind of healing, theologically sound interpretations to women who were raped during the war. So Dr. Zilka, for example, you know, there are secular international feminists believe that these wartime rape survivors the majority of whom were Muslims would feel better uh, with the kind of psychosociological treatment if they had somebody who would give them this consolation. And then so religion was a refuge for them. And so Dr. Zilka writes in so many of her you know, uh, essays and books that we, she says we had to react and answer to the immediate needs of hundreds of refugee women who survived various types of uh, violence. At that time, neither Sabiha, her colleague, nor I, I continue quoting, knew anything about feminism, Islamic feminism, or gender equality in general. All of these words and concepts sounded alien, but we could not wait to explore and learn about feminism. So it was just so interesting how, for example, in Bosnian context, this idea of Islamic feminism rose with people practicing but not knowing it. Um, as you mentioned, of course, in different contexts, now there are a lot of transnational movements as well. There is Musawa. I personally really appreciate their efforts. I think they're doing an incredible job because we have so many geographical contexts where the interpretations are being translated to laws that are very discriminatory and unjust towards women. And I was just reading now in terms of the pandemic, I mean, in terms of the lived realities that we're talking about, I think that scholars like you, Dr. Amina Wadud, you know, Ziba Hussein, that you, that you engaged in really important theoretical frameworks, but that ex one thing that I do appreciate really about Musawi is how they take it to action. Because one thing is to talk with Muslims in United States, where there's a, a wide range of, you know, things that that's going on and, you know, the systematic discrimination that Black Muslims have been facing in this country. And then to talk about Egypt, to talk about the things and problems in, you know, Malaysia. And so we're talking about state-induced discrimination in different manifestations. And that is why I do personally really appreciate these efforts. From everything that I've read, and sorry that I'm making my own rant, I'm just injecting some new inf information from all that I have tried to learn from different contexts as well. But what matters for me is that I believe that the main tenets of my faith could be reconciled with the universal human rights. Um, that's what I believe. And whoever is with me on that for making uh, lives of Muslim women more just, I'm with them. God, you're so patient. You listen to me rant so much on this. Um, it, was very, it was very informative for me. And I was going to say one of the tragedies of identitarianism, the politics of identity, is that people get boxed into these categories willy-nilly. They get named by others. And then consequences follow from that. And I think you're doing the right thing which is to say, you're going to look at the people's agendas. 
whether you can work with them, whether you can understand them, whether in spite of differences, you can still come up with some joint strategy because the point isn't to work with everybody who's exactly like us. The point is to work across differences. But uh, with identity politics, this labeling, this self-labeling and other labeling, it has a really toxic element to it. Mm -hmm. I do teach about the politics of identity as well. I used to. And the thing is that in some ways, it's important to claim an identity, especially if you're interested in justice, because it's based on who you are, that you're claiming certain rights. On the other hand, the identity politics very easily degenerates into this kind of being boxed into a category, being labeled, and then people already think they know what you should be. So there's no conversation there if people already assume certain things. So that's the best you can do, Riyada, is to keep an open mind, to understand this diversity and pluralism, and to understand that you will be working across differences. And that in some places, you will have to explain yourselves, uh, yourself, and in other places, you won't. So that's the best way to approach it, rather than trying to just slap a label and say, okay, this is what I am. Because people shift in how they're thinking. Yeah, absolutely. So that's been very helpful for me to hear from you. Yes, definitely. You were so patient and I went on. Maybe I'll have to edit some parts if it becomes too long. I hope that this uh, conversation is just, you know, allowing both Muslims and non-Muslims to just get a glimpse of the conversations that are going on and actually that have been going on for so long. It's just that we always come down to who speaks for Islam and who gets heard more having these conversations out there. But also Asma Abla really presenting the situation on the ground where I see so much purposeful or unconscious ignorance by many Muslims in the West of the situation in many Muslim majority countries where particularly family laws have tremendously hurtful consequences for so many women that many of us who have been privileged to get a glimpse of freedoms in particular contexts don't end up understanding whether it's you know the right to divorce, the right to inheritance, the right to find a job without man's permission, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, legal representation. So it is our, I think, responsibility to work in local contexts for more social justice, but also to keep an eye on, you know, Understanding that we have freedoms in particular contexts that many of our sisters and brothers don't have, and and that it just we need to kind of be aware of it. Tell all our listeners, because I found it so empowering, as I said from the beginning, from the way that you treat me, but also I think that you mentioned it, that you say that it's right for every Muslim to read and interpret the Quran for themselves. I think that that's something that might seem straightforward. But then I've, I see it on Twitter, as I say, I see it everywhere that all, very often both gender affiliation or scholarly expertise are cited as necessities to say anything. So many of us keep uh, quiet. What should be our relationship to the Quran, Asma Allah? Well, firstly, you should keep speaking. <laughs> because if you don't keep speaking, you won't change the culture. Mm. If you go by what the cultural expectations are, then I shouldn't be speaking either. Mm -hmm. And my work has been dismissed as feminist rubbish and other various things. But who cares? 
my relationship to the Quran is a personal one. I feel that I will be called to account for how I have lived. I want to be the one to know God. I'm not a Sufi saint, so I can only know God through God's word. And so that's my relationship to the Quran. And I think each one of us has to find our own relationship to it. And when I say to read and interpret the Quran, I understand that the vast majority of Muslims in the world are not literate. But I mean this as a right for those who are literate, but who won't read it, who won't interpret it in the sense that they won't use their reason, they won't use their akal, ilm or anything to deliberate on something. Instead, we go on accepting certain received interpretations, but also more and more Muslims are contesting those interpretations. So things are changing. And I feel like uh, people like you will bring the change because I don't think that uh, interpretation, there are different kinds of interpretation. We're not offering a linguistic interpretation of one particular word only. We're reading the Quran as a whole and we are wanting to share with each other what it is that we've learned from it. That's my right. Nobody gave it to me. That is from the Quran. Nobody has the right to stand between me and the Quran. They have a right not to listen to me, but I have the right to speak. Alhamdulillah, thank you for, for saying that because it's empowering to hear that from scholars like you. It truly is. It's as if we need permission because so many are trying to say that we shouldn't have. But I do want to encourage people to get your book, especially the one that was published in 2019, which is kind of the shortened version. Would you like to just say what is the, the difference between that one and tell us? So Believing Women uh, has been the original Believing Women. I updated it. I added two new chapters to it. So a second revised edition was published. The other is called Believing Women, a brief introduction. Now it's very interesting, this uh, secular slash atheist philosopher from Canada, who's older than I am, read my book and he was so inspired by it, he says, <clears throat> excuse me, that he wanted to, he asked me if he could write a simpler version of it for people like himself. <laughs> so he basically did that. And uh, I, of course, uh, I call it a process of remixing because he's uh, translated my academic language into simpler language, but he's also added his own ideas in there because he's a scholar of Islam by now. So he's very interested in it. I think his daughter was married to a Lebanese Muslim and he has Muslim grandchildren. So he has a real life interest in the, re in the religion. And so he, he's done this by, you know, he's distilled the central arguments of the original into simpler language and added some stuff to it. And it's a more reader-friendly book and it gives a taste to the reader for what the original is. So two books were published simultaneously, the revised edition and the brief introduction to Believing Women. So it's published uh, mm -hmm. under my name and the name of David um, Finn. I really have used the one from 2002 and the one from 2019. Uh, it's highlighted everywhere and I really recommend everybody to, to read it. So Asma Abla, now I'm gonna ask you five questions for the end, which I call five sweet questions, which are lighter. In, in scope in terms of what we have talked about in themes, but it allows me and, to, and my re listeners to 
really get to know somebody or get a glimpse beyond just scholarship. And so we all get more humanized. Okay. So once the current emergency is over, Asmabla, is there something that from this pandemic lockdown period, is there something that you would not want to forget? Well, I wouldn't want to, though my memory is fading, but I think uh, I, what I might remember are both the faces of injustice and the revolt against them. So I'm carrying both of these images in my mind right now because the, the contrast is so severe. You know, the sight of those federal agents out there beating protesters in Portland. Um, and then all of the people fighting back, it is something I didn't think I would live to see because I think that there's a culture of uh, cultivated ignorance and naivety in the United States and people are generally very passive. So hopefully I'll remember at least that contrast. Which of your traits, personality traits, has been the most useful? Not the best trait, but the most useful. Uh, I would say... Stubbornness and the lack of respect for authority. That's good. <laughs> well, I mean, good and bad, but <laughs> really bad. Oh, that. But you know, when you have thirty minutes of free time, Asma, how do you pass that time? I have much more than thirty minutes these days, and I pass it playing mahjong, mm. virtual mahjong. What skill or craft would you like to master? Well, lately I've been reading a lot about uh, cultivating stillness, stillness of the heart. I would like to do that. Would you like to share with us? Is there some literature you would want to recommend or something that you found particularly great? Well, some of the books on the I Ching. So it's like over 5,000 years old. Mm. But meditations on what also I would say Taoism, you know, cultivating stillness. I can't think of the books right off the top of my head, but the idea that you sort of retreat inwards to find calm and to center yourself. I know that many of us do that in maybe meditation, but I've never been able to be a very, in that way, I haven't been able to disentangle my brain from what's going on around me. So I want that sense of peace. And last question, are any of your friends completely opposite to you or are most of them similar to you? Most of my friends and, and my husband are opposite to me. So um, uh, yeah, major differences between us in terms of how we think, who we are, our personalities. And I think that's the reason we all love one another because while it can be very maddening uh, when the differences become a bit threatening, you know, But for the most part, we learn so much and uh, we enjoy it. I guess it's a testimony to the fact that there is love, there's support, there's understanding across difference, you know? Mm. On that note, I, I want to thank you for decades of your tireless efforts and the tools and the scholarship that you have provided for us and that now we can use both technology and abilities of connecting in uh, faster ways or just more substantial transnationally. Thank you for, again, as I said in the beginning, offering that transgenerational solidarity as well, which I think is very important and for allowing us and empowering us to just be reminded that we women, Muslim women, can be and should be active agents 
guys. That's how I see myself and that's how I use your scholarship. So thank you so much for your time and for listening to me. And do you have a message for our listeners, for young and old Muslim women and men and those non-Muslim ones who are mentioning you on Twitter, by the way. Remember how I told you that it's good you're not on Twitter? But, but there's so many people who appreciate you. I have found many interviews from your visit in London or you came last year, people who share your articles and appreciation for your work. So bringing you virtual salams from them, even though, you know, they don't know. But do you have any message for listeners? Well, to young Muslims, I always say that um, they have the future in front of them. They have opportunities that women of my generation didn't have. And that with courage, with um, love, most of all, for our creator, love for encountering that creator in this life through the Quran, that they will, they will do their bit, that they will struggle, they'll find their own struggles, and that they will not give up because they will be looking within themselves for the strength to go on. And to you, I would say, Riyadh, I don't have a daughter. And so you're like a daughter to me by now. And I very much uh, loved our conversation. There's so much energy, there's so much thoughtfulness, there's so much optimism, there's so much clarity. And I would say that you young generation literally are the future because you are Western Muslims in a completely new way than the Muslims who came, you know, and were in the West since the eighth century, which we forget. <laughs> that the Muslims were in the West before the West was the West, but your generation of Western Muslims, um, inshallah, I hope and I wish you, uh, you know, that your struggles will be successful, that you will lead lives that are clarifying for you and meaningful for you, even if they're not easy lives. Yeah, uh, I didn't expect that. Thank you for that. I uh, I just love our faith and I love our religion as many do. So it's only the questions that we started this conversations. It's the belief that God is just. So if God is just, how can there be uh, all the things that Muslims do in, in the name of it? And it's complicated, but thank you again for such kind words. And again, I invite everybody to read your book. Stay tuned. And I always say at the end of the conversation to my listeners, uh, hold tight to those you love. Stay well. <laughs>